Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening around the world. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Alexander, and you're listening to Ivy Exec Insights, a weekly podcast brought to you by Ivy Exec, an elite network of global thought leaders. You can visit us at ivyexec.com and join our growing executive network. In today's episode, you will have a chance to hear linguistic tips to help ramp up your virtual presence, led by our guest speaker, Valerie Friedland, linguist, professor, author, and public speaker. Dr. Valerie Friedland is a professor of social linguistics and the former director of English graduate studies at the University of Nevada in Reno. You can also sometimes catch her appearing as an expert for The Lisa Show, The Mentor Project, CBS News, The Nation, and News is the Why. In this session, we will cover five virtual presentations require different skill sets than in-person ones, how our linguistic style impacts how we are perceived, as well as how to incorporate these into virtual presentations. Enjoy the show! Thank you very much. Hopefully everybody can hear me. Um, I wanted to talk to you today about your virtual presence because while the pandemic may soon be over, let's hope, or uh, we're, we're praying that that's the case, I don't think our shift to a virtual workspace is going to be over anytime soon. So more and more of us are working from home, which has really good sides to it. After all, we can do work while wearing our sweatpants and our bunny slippers, although I want to assure you I have pants with buttons and have showered today. Um, but it's also bad because there are a lot of changes to the way we interact virtually from our face-to-face -face interactions. Some things are not that much different. So when we talk to friends, for example, of our virtual happy hours, or we have really casual interactions with colleagues at work, it doesn't feel that different or that stilted. But I think most of us have been in those places where we feel a little uncomfortable in the context where we're working with people that we want to impress, maybe supervisors, or we're in a job interview that's virtual, or we're having to give a presentation. And we could really use some pointers about how to make that shift to a virtual space space and still be engaging in our interactions and also impress people. So we have a lot of different things we got going on when we're virtual that we didn't have face to face. So because of this, I want us to think for a minute about what is that shift to virtual? How is that different than our face to face meetings or presentations or other workplace interactions? What's different about talking to people through a screen than in a regular meeting room? All right. So just think about what have you noticed the most? Well, of course, one thing is that we don't have the same ability to share social cues through other things other than our voice. So our voice becomes very, very important. When we're in an actual meeting, a lot of times when we're in the same physical space, we have things like body language, where people sit, how their body is oriented, whether they're facing each other, whether they're turned to face you, if they're trying to get to the door. We can get all those little cues that we get from just people's bodies language. We also have eye gaze, both where people are looking when we're talking and when we're, we're talking who we're looking at. Uh, and finally, we have gestures, and we can see a little bit of gestures on Zoom, but we're kind of floating heads mainly, so we don't have a lot of ability to let those gestures do a lot of communicating for us. So we basically lack a lot of the social cues that we're able to give off when we're in actual same meeting space, from the physical space is the same. 
One thing that this leads to is that our term transition cues become less clear. And what I mean by term transition cues, that's a fancy linguistic term for the places where we change speakers. So we all are aware of the conversational floor. That's something that we learn growing up as children. When I'm speaking, I have the conversational floor. And then I give up that conversational floor in a variety of ways. So I can either give it up because you take it from me, and that's obviously a rude thing none of us want to do. But most of the time, I let go of the conversational floors by providing some sort of cues to the next person that it's their turn to speak. And this can be an open call. So for example, I might just talk, stop talking um, and sort of just look around. And that gives everybody the sense that maybe anybody can jump in. Or I might specifically select a next speaker by making eye contact with them. Now, obviously this is really difficult over Zoom because we're all floating heads. Everybody has a different orientation on their screen and we can't really see who people are looking at. And this is a problem because I can't see when my audience is looking at me or they're reading emails behind me on the screen. And I, as a, as a speaker, can't select the next speaker by looking at them. So our, our ability to shift turns on the conversational floor is affected. You might not have realized that was the problem when you have those really weird silences or those awkward overlaps on Zoom or in some other virtual platform. But a lot of times this is what's happened. It's not quite clear when people are done speaking. So we either start speaking too soon or we don't speak at all. And this can often be awkward, especially when we're in high stakes contexts like interviews or making presentations. Now, what's really interesting about virtual platforms is it's not simply that we're not in the same physical space that gives us the problem. It's also the actual relay system of the internet that can create some havoc when we're trying to have a meeting or we're trying to take turns on the floor or we're trying to have a natural feeling conversation. Because when we have a, a Zoom interaction or some sort of virtual platform that we're using, there's an internet relay time lag of about 30 to 50 milliseconds more than what we have in normal conversational settings. Now, 30 milliseconds is not a lot of time, but it's enough to disrupt the rhythm of conversation because our brain waves are not able to sync up with the other speakers in the same way we're able to do in actual conversation. So this has been studied and it does seem to be part of what contributes to that sense of Zoom fatigue because you're working so much harder on Zoom to make conversation feel natural. And because your brain waves aren't, can't automate part of that process the way they do in regular conversation, it really leads to us feeling tired because we're basically having a greater cognitive load. Now, the problem with this is not only that we get exhausted after a couple of hours on Zoom, so you never wanna have really long meetings, it's also that we need to be more engaging as speakers to keep people's interest. And all we have is our voice to rely on. So if we wanna do better on Zoom, we have to come up with different ways to rely on linguistic features to help us be a stronger virtual presence. Now, the first thing I wanna talk about before we jump into those features is what exactly is a linguistic feature? Because if you haven't been studying linguistics for the past 15 years like I have, it might be something, a term that you're not familiar with. So when a sociolinguist like me looks at language, I don't look at language the same way that you do. I look at language as these tiny little choices that we make in everything we say that communicates both 
linguistic meaning or semantic content, and this would be the literal meaning of the things we say, and social meaning. And by social meaning, I mean it can either tell you facts about me. So, for example, my voice pitch will tell you if we're just on the telephone that I'm probably female. Um, and that's a, a sort of demographic factor that you can get some information from the way I speak about. But I also mean social meaning in the terms of meta messages that I might be giving you as a speaker, telling you either my attitude and stance towards what I say or the things that I think you should be taking away from what I say. So let me give you a few examples of what I mean when I say linguistic features and the types of things that a sociolinguist would study. This would be features like a discourse marker. Now, a discourse marker is a fancy word for something like I mean or so or well or okay or, you know. These are the things that we kind of stick in our speech that don't necessarily have semantic content, meaning I could take them out of what I say and it wouldn't change what I'm basically saying. But what they do is signpost for a listener how I expect you to take what I say, or they help a speaker understand how well a listener is, is understanding things. So when I say something like, so I did this, you know, what I'm asking for is a check of listenership. I want to make sure that you are paying attention. And this is why we use them a lot of times. And it's also some, one of the reasons why we have very interesting social patterns. So for example, we often tend to think as a, you know, as being a female feature. And part of that is because women tend to have to check for listenership, especially in workplace context, more than men. So we might find them relying on these features that sort of force uh, acknowledgement of what they're saying more than men do. So we can look at how frequent discourse marker use is and tell things about you both socially and about the way you want me to interpret what you're saying. So these are actually very important features that you probably don't even think about when you say them. Another really important feature is something like the pronouns you choose, which is something that seems pretty obvious. So for example, if you're talking about something you've done, it seems pretty obvious you'd have to use I. But actually what we find is that's not completely the case. And while I is very self-focused and takes on an individual perspective, we is other-oriented. So it usually focuses on other people and not just yourself. And we find that certain people tend to rely more on I and other people more on we, even when describing the same context. Now, that might not seem like a big deal, and you may not even notice if you do that. But the really fascinating thing about linguistic research is that it turns up who tends to do this, and we find that it patterns socially. So, for instance, when we look at leaders or people in positions of authority or in high-status stakes, we find that they tend to use more we or other-oriented pronouns compared to I. This might seem obvious because a lot of times a leader of a business or a CEO is going to talk about things that involve teamwork and they're not going to want to take that attention off their colleagues and put it on themselves. So obviously they're going to use we and they more. But we also find that people with more negative effective states, so people that are depressed or less happy, tend to use higher rates of I than people that are happier or less negative in their effective states. And we find that when we study students just spontaneous writings at college, if they then on later personality tests or um, effective state tests say that they're more depressed or tend to be more negative, we find that those students actually use a higher rate of I pronouns in the writing. So here you can see that something very simple that we all use every day, and I guarantee none of you have thought about, huh, I'm going to use I today because I'm feeling very self-focused, right? You just do it. Actually say something very revealing about you, and they communicate things about you socially and about how 
other people will take you or how you want them to perceive you. So what we need to do is think about how we say things, not just what we're saying. And that's what I'm going to help you with today, because some of the things you might choose to say will really help ramp up your virtual presence, while other things might make it a little less exciting. So let's step back and think about what it is we want people to take away from our talks. When we either give a presentation or we're in an interview or even when we're in a meeting and we have something that we need to contribute in that meeting, we want a couple of different things. First of all, we want to make a good impression as a speaker. And this doesn't just mean that we want to sound articulate and eloquent and enunciate things. This also means that we want to seem likable and friendly and sociable because in our colleagues, we don't just want really good workers. We want really good people. We want people that we can relate to and that we feel are, we're safe with when we share our thoughts and opinions. And we're going to get better collaboration if we have that kind of relationship. So that's something we really want to communicate over Zoom, just like in a face-to-face -face meeting. Of course, we also are saying things that communicate information. And so it's really important that we also get across what we're saying, the informational content of what we're saying. And in that same realm, we have certain points within that information we want to make sure that people get. So not everything we're going to say about that, that topic is going to be that important that they take away, but certain key points are the things we want to get across. So basically, we want to be really clear as communicators, but also interesting as speakers. And so what linguistic features might help us both be engaging as speakers and also make sure we help focus our listeners on what's important in what we're saying. So let's start off with something pretty obvious, your voice. Uh, no, so actually we're gonna wait for the voice. I forgot, I'm gonna talk with questions first. So think about when you go to a lunch meeting or a dinner meeting and you sit down, what's the first thing you do? Well, for me, it might be order a martini, but after I order the martini, I'm going to ask some questions. And why do you ask questions? It might be a business lunch meeting or a business dinner meeting where you're actually gonna get work done, but you also need to sit down and make sure that you're on the same page, that you're likable and sociable. Just like I talked about before, that there are two things we wanna do, both communicate information and be sociable as speakers. And questions are really important ways of doing this. And sometimes we forget that when we're on Zoom. We get on Zoom, we're in a meeting, everybody's face has popped up and we do nothing, we say nothing. So it makes it really awkward and then that leads to more awkward silence and weird overlap because we sort of haven't let ourselves get into that sort of space where we're comfortable talking like we do when we go to a meeting and we make chit chat at first. So think about making some social chit chat on a Zoom. And that can be either in an interview or in a meeting or when you're making a presentation, you can start off with some questions. And it's really good to have a couple ideas prepared so you're not really sounding weird or awkward when you get in there. But the reason that questions are powerful linguistic devices is because they're known as something called adjacency pairs in linguistics. Now, that's a fancy word for simply saying it's a two-part pair. And when I ask you a question, you know that there's a second part to that question that follows. That's the answer. So questions and answers are the adjacency pair. We have a number of other things in linguistics that are adjacency pairs, and we all learn them as children as being two-part together. And another thing that acts like questions are greetings. And this is why when you say hello and I don't say hello back, you think I'm a rude asshole because it's an adjacency pair. And you recognize that the first part requires a second part. They're a verbal call to action when someone states that first part. So that makes them very, very powerful devices because from the time we're little kids, we are socialized into responding to them. We are socialized into adjacency pairs, whether that's a question, a greeting, or even gratitude and thanking expressions. So when I say thank you, you say, 
and I know all of you are thinking you're welcome, right? Or no problem or whatever you say for you're welcome. But if someone says thank you and you say nothing, again, it feels like something is missing because they're an adjacency pair. So one thing we can do is start with the first part of that adjacency pair, which is going to make people in the audience really feel like they need to participate. And a lot of times people are hesitant, especially over Zoom, to get in on conversation. But the more we can get people involved, the more engaged in what we say they're going to be. And this is why you also have to be careful about the type of question that you ask, because a yes, no question can be very leading and it can feel like there's no real substantive exchange of information there. So it doesn't really get people involved. And more importantly, it doesn't get them thinking about what you want them to think about. So an open-ended question requires both more effort and more thinking to respond to. Now by open-ended questions here, I mean like the what, why, when, where type of questions versus the did you type questions. And so think about questions that start with what, where, why, when, because that will get your audience more engaged. If you're giving a presentation, you don't have to expect an answer. Rhetorical questions work just as well. In fact, I've asked several of them already. And what happens is you start thinking about those answers, which means you're focused on what I'm telling you. You're focused on what I'm saying. And the more that you participate as a listener in what I'm saying, the more you're going to remember it and be engaged. And so use this training to your advantage, ask questions and preferably the open-ended ones. The other thing to think about is we often ignore chat and it is really hard to multitask. So one thing to do is to just make sure you have pauses where you say, I'm gonna just check the chat here, give me just a minute, but please put your questions in the chat if you wanna talk about them or any comments or concerns, have them in the chat. And then if you make time to check the chat, people feel A, that you're going to use it, so they'll use it as well if they're hesitant to speak up, and B, that you're really engaging everybody that's listening to you. Now, obviously in some things like an interview, that's not gonna be relevant, but just don't forget the chat in other contexts, and this includes meetings and presentations. All right, so now that you have everybody warmed up and everybody's interested in what you're having to say because you've gotten them involved by asking questions, Let's talk about the really obvious thing, right? The elephant in the room when you're on a virtual presentation is your voice. Now, in some cases, you're not even gonna see the people you're talking to, you're only going to hear your voice. So I don't know what the format of meetings are where you're, you're participating in them or interviews, but sometimes you'll have some people that are on the screen and some people that aren't. So voice might be the only thing that they're singing, seeing or the only thing that you're hearing in other people. So think about how you feel when you hear people's voices. If I just talk like this and I don't vary my speech rate much and I don't really add anything interesting, what is your response? You're sleeping, right? You're not paying attention, you're checking your email because I'm not interesting. If all you have to listen to and be engaged by is my voice and I'm using this sort of prosodically dull intonation pattern, you're not gonna listen to me. So here's where we take a cue from our conversation. If you are in a face-to-face -face interaction and you were talking to people, you tend to vary your speech rate and your pitch a little more than you do on virtual interactions because you want people to be engaged and you get a full body experience. Unfortunately, we tend to get very into our little body space there where we're not showing, we're not seeing other people's bodies, and we're not getting engaged and embodied in what we're saying, which then harms the way that we modulate our speech pitch and our speech rate. So one thing you have to think about really strongly when you're in virtual interactions is making sure you add a little interest into your voice. So what does linguistic research tell us about voice? Well, there are actually 
a huge amount of studies on voice. And a lot of them look at various things. But the first thing that these studies have looked at is the just absolute voice pitch. And this is sort of your average frequency of your voice. Now, this can be a high pitch. So something like this, that's a little higher, or it can be a low pitch where I'm using my lower tones. And what we find with research is that pitch gets strongly correlated with uh, personality attributes. And unfortunately for women, lower pitches are generally perceived more beneficially and stronger and, str and more positively than high pitch. So when we look at leadership, competence, and um, employability scales, when we rate those with pitch, we find that lower pitches rank higher than higher pitches. And so this has been a problem for women, which is one of the reasons we see people like Elizabeth Holmes um, adopting a very low pitch in their workplace context. Um, Elizabeth Holmes was the, the uh, CEO of that company uh, that said they could get tests from blood, blood rate tests that was indicted, I think, on fraud. But one of the things that was most commented on was not her legal practices, but her really lowered voice pitch, which sound, sounded unnatural. So you don't want to do that kind of putting on a pitch just because you think low pitches are perceived more strongly. But there are other ways you can modulate your voice pitch to take advantage of the positive and beneficial attributes we associate with low pitch. This One of these things is to vary up your pitch overall. And this means you have excursions into high pitch and excursions into lower pitch, just like I illustrated there, as you speak. This is beneficial for a number of reasons. Both you get the bang of low pitch and the attributes we assign to it, but also because we find that when you look at how speakers rate monotone voices, they don't find them as interesting, nor do they think they're as charismatic as voices that have much more pitch variability. So when we go higher and lower and we highlight the things we're gonna say by going up in pitch or lower in pitch, or we signal the ends of our conversational um, turns by going in lower pitch, or we invite collaboration by raising our pitch, we find that people listen more and people find us as more dynamic and charismatic speakers. And so this is an obvious thing on virtual platforms to increase your virtual presence, vary up your pitch rate. Not only does pitch rate make a difference, but pitch intensity. And the difference with pitch intensity from pitch rate is pitch intensity is basically how loud things are. And that doesn't mean you should be screaming at people because pitch intensity is when, high, when heightened, uh, viewed more positively. Instead, what this means is you should vary up your pitch intensity so that the things you want to highlight just like that word I said a little louder there, are the things that you add more intensity to. So when we make what we say a little more intense, it's more noticeable, it stands out more, and it's also more favorably received. And we're perceived as more dynamic speakers as well. And finally, spe speech rate is important. And this is how fast or how slow you're speaking. And this seems to also affect how people rate us. And we find that faster speakers are generally rated more positively and more charismatically than slow speakers. Now, this doesn't mean you should talk so fast that people can't understand you or that you sound unnatural or weird, but if you are a slow speech talk rate talker, you should consider how you might be able to vary your speech rate in other areas that you're very comfortable with rather than places you might not be so comfortable with what you're saying so that you get this sort of dynamicity and this charismatic style that fast speakers get. So that's the first thing we wanna do is look at how our speech and our voice itself is affecting our virtual presence. 
The next thing we worry about a lot of times is not only, okay, well, I'm talking slower, I might be prosodically dull, um, but that I might be a little nervous when I'm in those high stakes contexts like interviews or presentations, and I might be using filled pauses more than in my natural conversational speech or in a face-to-face meeting where I have a little more to lean on than just my voice and just a floating head on a screen. And this is where I want to sort of have you step back and think about what work filled pauses do for you. Because it's something that we sort of hate in general. If you ask anybody about ums and uhs, and that's what I mean by filled pauses, no one is going to say, yes, add more. They're fabulous. They're awesome. But what a linguist can tell you is, yes, they're awesome. They do so much for you. And it's amazing when you step back and look at the research on filled pauses. So what I'm trying to get at here is not to add more to what you say, but not worry about them so much when you use them. When do we use filled pauses? That's one thing we need to think about because it will help us maybe think about how to practice those parts to use fewer of them if they worry us, but also why we might be sticking them in there in the first place. When we look at linguistic research on where filled pauses occur, what we find is filled pauses tend to occur before items of greater cognitive complexity. What I mean by that is when we're using words we're not familiar with, very complex work-related jargon, for example, or we're using sentences that are more syntactically complex, which means we're embedding phrases in other phrases and using big relative clauses and having longer sentences. We tend to use more um and uh because they are signals of cognitive processing. So we're not using um and uh because we're bad speakers. We're actually using um and uh because we're more complex speakers. And they generally are used at a greater rate when we're in context in which we use more abstractions and more low frequency words. And when we use more complex sentence structure. And guess what? That's not when you're at the bar hanging out with your friends. That's when you're in settings exactly like workplace presentations or interviews context when we have more to do and more to talk about that we may not talk about in our daily life. So when we're talking about very jargon-related things or maybe places and, and topics that we're not generally talking about in other contexts, it's naturally going to encourage the use of filled pauses prior to those specific places. Another reason we use filled pauses is to signal to others that we're not done with our speaking turn. So, for example, when I have to think for a minute about what I'm saying because I'm talking about something more complex or less familiar or more abstract, I'm going to stick an um or uh in my speech instead of just take a silent pause because I don't want to give an incorrect cue that the speaking floor is yours. And remember at the very beginning, I talked about those all important turn transition cues that we tend not to have as many signals of over Zoom. So Zoom itself or any kind of virtual platform will probably encourage us to use more um and uh just naturally because we tend to use them as signals of keeping the conversational floor rather than giving it up. And since our turn transition cue abilities are affected when we're on Zoom, we're not able to give as many cues like eye contact and gaze, we may need to lean on um and uh slightly more to make sure that others aren't jumping in on our conversational floor turns. So we use um and uh to both signal to our listener that we're doing some hefty cognitive retrieval um, and also to be a sort of conversational sign that I'm not quite done talking. So it's going to be a natural place over virtual context, especially in the workplace, that we're using more of them. 
And we worry that that's going to affect how people perceive us. It'll affect our virtual presence. But let me tell you a little thing about what those field pauses are doing, and it might make you feel a little better about using them and also help you not judge others when you're listening to them use it, especially in workplace settings. When we look at fMRI studies that uses used stimuli that had field pauses inserted before certain words, what we find is it triggered a greater neural response when that information was preceded by the field pause than when it wasn't, which the authors of the study suggested might enhance memory. When we look at other studies that basically put two different things on a screen, so they might have one word people had heard before and a new word, or it might have one shape people had seen before and a new shape, when the, the spoken stimulus for identifying that word or that shape was said and people were asked to uh, click on them on the screen, we find that processing time is decreased and shape or word identification is faster when that stimulus was preceded by an uh, which means that that uh is actually helping people come up with the right answer faster. In addition, when we do studies where we give, tell people sentences and we say, just listen to these sentences, and we have some words that are preceded by a uh in those sentences and some that are not, when we give them a surprise memory test later, about an hour later, the people that heard the stimulus with the uh inserted before the word have better memory and recollection and recall of those words than the people, the participants that did not have a in those in those sentences. We find the same thing happens when we tell stories. So think about this as giving presentation. You're telling a story. It may not be an exciting story, but it's still a story. And in the studies, which used actually Alice in Wonderland retellings, we found that when an a preceded key plot points in that story, later memory tests showed that participants remembered and recalled those key points better than areas where they didn't have an uh preceding them. So I guess basically what you can take away from this is maybe you don't want to use more uh and uh, uh and um, because we still tend not to like them and it does affect how we perceive a speaker. But if you do use them, which often happens in virtual settings, don't worry too much about them because they're actually doing beneficial things for both you as a listener and the, the I'm so sorry, both you as a speaker and the listeners. They're actually helping them remember what they say. So you don't want to use too many because they also might affect how you're perceived as a speaker, but using some is fine. And the other really interesting thing is studies show that when speakers are heavy ummers, it doesn't really matter too much. People don't get a more negative perception of them as long as what they're saying is interesting and they're otherwise a dynamic speaker. Because when that isn't the case, people do find those annoying. So think about the last time you were listening to someone and you heard them use a lot of um and us. When they tended to be boring speakers otherwise, they used a very slow speech rate. They didn't use any kind of voice modulation to enhance their voices. You probably sat there and thought, oh my God, if they say one more um, I'm going to scream. But when people are really interesting and exciting as speakers, you listen to what they say, not how they say it. And we find in those contexts, people do not attend to the style because they're attending to the content. So the more fascinating you can make yourself as a speaker, the more you can up your virtual presence, the less people will remember your ums and uhs, but those ums and uhs you did use will help them remember. So all good things actually, when you think about your filled pauses. 
And finally, there's another thing you can do to really ramp up your virtual presence. And this is both in, in actual really life, real life settings, but especially in, in virtual settings where we really want to add some umph to what we say and make it memorable. And this is using intensity. And by intensity here, I don't mean give smoldering looks to your listeners and kind of a la Zoolander. What I mean is adverbial intensity. I'm going for the linguistics here, right? Not the Zoolander looks. Now, when I say adverbial intensifiers, what I mean are things like extremely, very, really, so, totally. Those kinds of additions to our speech that help ramp up and emphasize the points we're going to make. They usually precede other adverbs, adjectives, or verbs. So you could say, I was tremendously excited, excited by this opportunity, which is much better than I was just excited. So for example, if someone's telling you about a great book they read and they said, oh yeah, I read this interesting book. You may or may not read it, but you said, I read this incredibly interesting book, that's going to encourage you to pick it up. What we find is when people use intensifiers, other people, listeners, believe that they're more certain or sure about what they're saying. And this is obviously a really good thing when you're in a workplace setting. You want to be certain and show control. And in fact, when we look at studies on people that use intensifiers in their speech from communication perspectives, we find that they're viewed as powerful speech features. They both help you seem like you have more authority, certainty, and control, but they also make you more likable and sociable because we also recognize these from speech features we have in casual contexts. So intensity is actually very good. What we do find, though, is there are some more colloquial intensifiers, things like so and totally, that may not be construed as positively. And if you overuse them, you use them every single time you have a verb or an adjective, then they don't have that same oomph and you you're going to be senses overusing them. So the key is do intensify, but don't over intensify and be careful in the ones you use. And in fact, the more um, unusual intensifiers you can come up with, like tremendously, terrifically, terribly, those kinds of less common intensifiers compared to very and really come across as if you've spent more time thinking about what you're going to say. So remember, intensity is good, but be careful how you intensify. All right, so to sum it all up, that we all have a linguistic style and how we portray ourselves when we're in face-to-face -face context is usually indicative of the linguistic style that we lean on. And some of us may not use many intensifiers. We may not modulate our voice pitch. We may not speak super fast. We may not ask a lot of questions when we're in virtual context compared to when we're in actual context. So while you might use all these things in your everyday face-to-face -face conversational experiences, you may be less likely to use them in virtual settings. And so one thing that you you can do to really be sure that you can bring these types of virtual presence features into your talk is to practice them, to do virtual meetings or do virtual mock interviews and record yourself and try to get a sense of where you could improve in some of these features and what you're doing well and maybe ramp those up.